We've been going through a series on holiness, and that is a word that if you've, if you've been around the church at all, you've heard it, but it's entirely possible that you don't really have a clear grasp of what that means. Not because, I mean, you're all smart, wonderful, accomplished individuals, but because that's, it's, it's a slippery word, and, it, and it's a word that gets used a lot, so much so that you begin to forget what it means. And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how God is holy, how he is separate from his creation, right? We've got creation, we've got the stars, we've got space, we've got planets, we've got our, 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 what, what exists on the earth, all of the, the flora and the fauna, the animals, the plants, and then we've got God, and he is absolutely distinct from everything else that he made. He is holy in that respect. But not only is he holy in the respect that he's separate, he's also greater than everything else in terms of worthy of honor. You know, we talk about how, how we, well, we won't go there. But suffice it to say that God is, he's worthy of honor. He is the greatest king of kings and lord of lords. He's the most powerful. He's the smartest. He's the wisest. He's also the most loving and patient and kind. And there are so many reasons why God is greater. And that greatness, we can sum it up and say that he is holy. And so we've been talking about what that looks like. And as we think about that, my hope is that you begin to see that that the reality of God's holiness is a bit like a high mountain. It's a bit like walking up to a great height and seeing the height and, and, and thinking to yourself, this is dizzying. I remember when I was a youth pastor, we went to this conference in Chicago, and I did all the things that you should do in Chicago. I ate a terrible deep dish pizza. Um, they're not, it's not, whatever it is, it wasn't pizza. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Uh, that is not in the Bible, but it is my strong opinion. Um, but, but another thing we did was we went to the, the Sears Tower. I'm not sure what it's called now, but it's not called the Sears Tower. Um, but I remember walking up, and I mean, it's tall. And not like, you know, he's a tall guy. It's tall like you look up and you almost can't see the sky for how high it goes. And I remember us going into the, the elevator, and, and we've all been in elevators where it's like ding, and you have the music going and the awkward silence or weird conversation with the stranger next to you. But this one, it had, it had the, the, the room, or not the room, the, the, the levels that you were going up, and, and it would go like one, two, three, four, five, six, and it started to do this, and you're beginning to freak out because it is dizzyingly tall. And it's not even the biggest building in the world. And when you come up to it, or you look out from the top of it, you realize this is this is worthy of some respect. Um, they've got these rooms or these windows. I'm not sure what you call them, terror uh, cubes, uh, where it, you have glass on the bottom, top, and in the front. So, you know, logically speaking, you can step out and live. But everything in my, um, you know, this part of my brain that's just kind of instinctual is like, don't do that, Eddie. That's stupid. You can see the cars. You're going to be hit by the cars. You're going to become one with the cars. But, but there's something about heights and things like that that, that demand respect. And I, I joke about these things, but my hope is that as we've begun to talk about holiness, that we've begun to think about the fact that God is 
a person, a being who demands respect, who deserves respect. And as we think about the fact that he deserves respect, I want to ask an honest question. How is it possible for us to even begin to approach him? And, and, and I think that we, we can struggle with that question because we live in a very casual society. I talked about this last week, and, and, and we're casual people, and casual is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but, but when casual comes into irreverence or dishonoring, the Bible gives us a picture of what that looks like, and it's a little scary. You know, there are a number of individuals who, who are affected by their casualness towards God. The word says, I said in, in uh, last week, I, I quoted it, but in Hebrews 12, 29, it says that God is a consuming fire. It's quoting Deuteronomy, which was talking about idolatry, how he's a jealous God, and he's a consuming fire. And, and I talked about last week how there were some individuals who approached God with a kind of casualness that resulted in their immediate death. We, we had Nadab and Abihu, these two brothers who, who thought to themselves, we're going to have our own worship service, we're going to frame it how we want to do it, and they walked in and began to light some fires that, that God had not prescribed in ways that God had not prescribed, and he struck them dead because they were being casual and irreverent. They had not respected the holiness of God. There's Uzzah we talked about who they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, victoriously back from their enemies. And they were celebrating, but the, they, they had not been carrying the Ark in the way that God had prescribed. Rather than carrying it on their shoulders with poles, it was being pulled by a cart and some ox and it jostled. And as it started to fall over, if you could imagine one of the holiest of holy things falling over, one of the guys did something he thought was absolutely logical and tried to grab it. But he was struck dead because he was being casual. And God's holiness was more important than the, the integrity of that box itself. The box was not the point. God's holiness was. In the New Testament, we have Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're realtors. They're selling properties. And they come to the table. And We're going to give this money to, to the church. This is all, all the money from our sale. We just sold our our rental property in Ashburn, and, and this is all of it. But it wasn't all of it. They had lied. And because they had lied and tried to present something that was false, God struck them dead. Last week we saw that in Leviticus, God's holiness demanded a high price. It demanded death, and it demanded that the high priest himself, before he intercede on behalf of the people, he had to have a sacrifice on his behalf. All of this had to be done in order for unholy people to approach a holy God and live. So for you and me, I, I really want you to wrestle with this question because it's not, it's not theoretical. What does it take for unholy people like you and me to approach a holy God? We're going to stand together as we read uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Will you stand with me? If you're new, this is our practice. We like to read the word of God out loud together. Uh, you can trip over words sometimes. I often do, but, but it's good to hear your brothers and sisters in Christ reading the word out loud. Amen. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number 
because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come and approach you. And I'm thankful that we are capable and able and encouraged to do so because of the the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. But God, I pray that you would give us a sense of the cost, a sense of the the holiness that demands reverence. And God, as we think about this, would you would you help us to unpack what it would look like for us to live in more holy ways? God, what things need to change in our own lives that we might reflect Jesus Christ more and bring reproach to his name less? God, as we live in a, in a broken, sinful, unholy culture and find ourselves as individuals with indwelling sin, with sin that, that remains, a rebelliousness that's just so difficult to fight against. Would you help us to see the value, the worth of God? Would you help us to see your worth and help us to approach you appropriately? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'll start out with the good news. We can approach God through Jesus the better high priest, and the better sacrifice. Now, I touched on this last week, but it it bears repeating. We can approach God through Jesus, the better high priest, and the better sacrifice. I want us to to think about the, the problem with the priests. That's the first thing that we'll talk about. I want to talk about the problem with bulls and goats, of which there are many, but we're going to talk about a few specific things. And the promise of Jesus Christ. The problem with the priests, the problems, the problem with bulls and goats, and the promise of Jesus. You know, there, there were two problems that existed as God had instituted the, the priesthood. Uh, and, and he lays them out pretty clearly in, in, in this little section. The, the writer of Hebrews is, is throughout the the book of Hebrews, comparing Jesus to everything else. He compares him to angels. He compares compares him to the high priests. He he compares him to to kings. um, And and he encourages us in saying that Jesus is better. And he does that by showing how these other things are inferior. And so in, in verse 23, he says, the former priest, talking about the Levitical priests that we talked about last week, those those men who were from the the tribe of Levi, who served in the temple, 
those individuals who, who stood before God on behalf of the people, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died. And that's problematic. That's problematic. Death limited their, their ministry. Their effectiveness was limited by the fact that they were under the curse of sin and death. Uh, ultimately, they couldn't save because they too needed a savior. It, you, you know, you, would, you really wouldn't want to call the fire department and have them show up and say, hey, do you have any water? Like, no, you're the fire department. You're coming to save me. And they're like, oh, yeah, totally. Hold on, let me make a phone call. And they call you, and they're like, hey. And you pick up the phone. Yeah? Can you help me? No, I called you. They, it's never good when you have a Savior that needs saving. Which leads us to problem number two. They were sinful. Verse 27 says this. It says that he, talking about Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. What he was saying was these high priests who were intended to stand before God couldn't even begin to do that until they had their own sins dealt with. Think about this. They were chosen just by having been born into this family, but they couldn't even do their job until God had done something for them. And, And at this point... If we're paying attention, I think God was trying to give them a message that, that even, even at this, this beginning part of, of this, this nation of Israel, that they needed God. E- even the solution, the human solution that God instituted really depended upon God at the base of it. God was the one who was going to deal with the priest's sins before they could even begin to do the work that God had called them to to do. You know, uh, if you're shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean and, and you begin to drown, you know, you're treading water and your nose is coming up here and you begin to go down into the water, what you don't want to see is another person who's drowning and flailing, trying to come over and, and sort of help you. Because it's very likely they will pull you down with them. We, they needed a savior because they were also sinful. Uh, in the history of the priests of the Old Testament, all the priests were sinners and many were very wicked, often doing the opposite of serving as advocates for the people. And so there was this history in the Old Testament of, of God instituting a means by which he could relate to the people of God and yet it was always had sin and brokenness creeping into it. They would offer sacrifices, and, and, and at the Day of Atonement, there'd be a sort of reset that I talked about. If you weren't here last week, there was this Day of Atonement every year where the high priest would go, and he would offer one sacrifice on behalf of the, the people of God, paying for their sins by its death, and then they would, he would confess the sins of the people on this other goat, and they would chase that goat away, and these two sacrifices, one was intended to show God appeasing his own wrath through the death of that animal. And the other was God taking away our sin, taking away all of the the record of our disobedience. And it happened every year. And we were talking about this in small group and and someone mentioned that, you know what didn't happen was, was there was no encouragement to go and sin no more. 
because there was no intrinsic change that happened as a result. It was just, we're going to do the same thing, do the same thing, do the same thing. And if you were to go through the, the Old Testament, you see that it does seem like they were doing the same thing, but they were being pulled down by the weight of sin. There wasn't as much of a, a lift from the grace of God. There wasn't a, as much of a, a sense that, that somehow they were making positive steps forward. And in fact, all we really see at the end of the Old Testament is, man, we need a better priesthood. We need a better priesthood. You know, you, you and I, I don't think that we struggle with this, and, and you may not connect necessarily with the idea of a priesthood, but we all have functional saviors that, if we're honest, at the end of the day, we, find, we, we have a bitter taste in our mouth, right? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's, it's a, a profession. But it's something that, that brings us meaning, definition, hope, but then we have these moments in the dark where we're by ourselves and, and we, we look at our life and we realize, hmm, this is not doing what I want it to do in my life. This is not bringing the change that I want it to bring. This relationship is not bringing the, the, the wholeness that I had expected that it would bring. This job is not bringing me the sense of, of meaning that I thought it would bring. And, and whenever you elevate anything in, in creation to the point of, of trying to provide that kind of salvific work, you find that it is actually hollow. The issue of the inadequacy of the priests is compounded with the problem with the bulls and goats. What is the problem with the bulls and goats? The priest on the Day of Atonement was to sacrifice bulls and goats for their sins. What the bull was to sacrifice for the, the high priest himself to atone for his sins, to cover over his sins, to pay for his disobedience. And then the, the two goats were intended to do so for the people. But ultimately, these, these sacrifices didn't have any power to perfect the people. The sacrifices that were made every single year didn't have the power to perfect the people. In Hebrews chapter 10, we get to skip ahead and see the, the end of the story before... We've talked about it. It says in chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That was a long sentence. But what it's saying is that since the law, talking about really the, the Old Testament and, and its institutions, because the law is really just a shadow, it, it's, it's a husk. It can't actually bring perfection or make perfect those who draw near. So even when they were obedient, even when they, they followed the rules of the law to the T, even when they did everything that they knew to do right, it still didn't have the power to deal with the issue of sin in their own hearts. It covered their sin. It gave them a new year. It gave them new opportunities, but the law alone was incapable of changing them and transforming them. And in case, we, we love the law. We love the Ten Commandments. We have not just thrown that out and said, do what you want. But, but the law alone is not capable of, of bringing the change. In verse 2, it says, otherwise, if, if it had worked, would, not they have, uh, sorry, would they not have ceased to be offered since worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sin? He says, guys, if it had worked, 
If, if the sacrifices could have worked, then, then they would have been cleansed. They would have actually been cleansed, and they would have walked out and said, you know what, I'm a changed man. I'm a changed woman. We're a changed people. And they would have been categorically different. But they weren't. He goes on, and he says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, what God was doing was creating a system by which the people of God could see every year, I need something better. They were confronted with their own sinfulness. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thief. I've broken God's law. I'm, a, I'm an idolater. Every year they were confronted with their sin and they were confronted with their need and they were confronted with the cost of their sin, the blood and, and, and the loss. I mean, these were not just, you know, we think about goats and like, that's, that's weird, okay, goats, whatever. But that represented money. That represented provision. They had to give towards this every year. There were sacrifices that were being made on the daily. All of this money was being funneled into this, this system that in the end just showed them that they needed something better. The people needed more than these sacrifices to affect real change. God gave them new opportunities every year, but what changed within the people? What, what changed that res, would result in something different? That's, that's the question. And, and if you're in this room today, and, and maybe you don't personally believe in Jesus, this whole Jesus thing, you're, you're not really hoping in him, you're listening because a family member invited you, or because, I don't know, you got bored, and you're like, it's Sunday, I'll go to church. Um, there's still things that we hope in apart from God. You may not hope in, in these, this sacrificial system, but there are things that we put our hope in and say, if I could just have this thing, then everything would be right in the world. If I could just have this person in my life, everything would be right in the world. If I could just have this job, if I could just have this much money, just a little more, then everything would be right. If I could just live in this place, if I could just finally get this degree, if I could finally get back at, at this person who hurt me, if I could just have you know, this re retribution, everything would be okay. What is the hope that you have? When you see evil in the world and when, when you're honest with yourself and you see evil in yourself, what do you hope in that, that it'll be changed? Right? When you get on the news and you find out something horrible happened, where do you put your hope to say, you know what, I, I think that tomorrow will be better? Is your hope in the goodness of humanity? Seems a little naive if that's the case. I love you guys, but we're all rascals. Is your hope in progress? You know, maybe technology will fix things. Maybe ChatGBT will do what, what the internet could not. Maybe it'll do what, you know what's interesting about technology is it doesn't change humanity. It just, it just changes the amplitude of humanity. We're just able to sin more effectively and more broadly and to celebrate that sin more globally. Where's your hope? Whether it's bulls or goats or something else, it's clear that we need something better to save us. And the good news is that there is someone better. Jesus is a better high priest. 
He's, he's a better sacrifice. Uh, and he makes a promise to us. It says in, in verse 24, rather than the, the Levitical priests who would die because they were human and, and sinful and affected by the, the curse of sin, it says he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See, the, the good news about Jesus Christ is not just, hey, he died and he rose again and he went to heaven and, and yay. No, it has implications because I don't know about you, but I sinned today. I had a bad attitude. How about you? I, I, maybe I, I, I didn't trust God enough and I was anxious. And, and even though I, I trusted in God when I was seven, what, what does that have to do with today? Well, what that has to do with today is that God has Jesus Christ his son in heaven interceding on my behalf today. So there isn't a sacrifice that needs to be made because my high priest is already in heaven talking to God the Father. Already interceding on my behalf. Already praying on my behalf. Already making a way for me. By his resurrection, Jesus has ensured that his ministry as a high priest is an eternal ministry. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a uh, well, hopefully this will work out. No, he's ensured this is a system that will work. Jesus is eternal. He's a better high priest because he's eternal. He's also a better high priest because he's holy. It says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy. You know, the, the, the high priests that had to be sacrificing on their own behalf were not holy. I, I can't imagine how frightening that might be, that, that they would have to stand in front of God, especially the ones who had seen God do things in Exodus. They had seen God destroy the Egyptians, and now they're like, congratulations, you get to stand before this God, be careful, make sure you wash really good, and kill that animal, or else you'll die. And just the whole time you're like, am I doing this right? I hope I'm doing this right. Kill the animal, get the blood, I'm putting it in places, I'm like, I hope I'm doing this right, you're sprinkling it. I hope I'm doing this right. Because he was not holy. He wasn't holy. He was like you and me. But Jesus is holy. It says that it was fitting that we should have a high priest like that. He was holy. He was innocent. None of us is innocent. None of us are, are, is innocent. Our children, they're wonderful. They're not innocent. You know that. You've seen they're sweet. They got cute little cheeks and they say hilarious things from time to time, but they are not innocent. He's unstained. You know, family, we, we are, we can't help but be, but be stained by the sin of our, our, our lives and those around us. Our lives are like the knees of a seven-year-old boy, always stained always stained. I don't know about you, but when I was, my parents could not keep me in jeans. And for, I don't remember having like play jeans and jeans jeans. I don't know if that was because I was disobedient or my parents just didn't do it, but it was just green. My blue jeans were not blue. They were green because they were constantly stained. And that's, that's our life, constantly stained. I mean, in ways that we don't even realize. It's the sort of thing where you, someone's like, you're stained over there. And you're like, I didn't even know. How did that get there? Jesus is unstained by sin, separated from sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus 
wouldn't interact with sinners because we saw that, that he was a friend to sinners, that he would eat with sinners and tax collectors. And I'm thankful for that because I fall into that category. But what that says is there was a, there was a separation. You know, there were those people who, you, you, maybe you've experienced this, where you, you get in contact with them and they're really wonderful people to be around, but also they make you a little nervous because you know that they're better than you. I don't, I don't mean that in terms of skill. I just mean that in terms of like they are just holier people. And, and there's, a, there's a, a magnetism about them. You want to be around them, but, but at the same time, you're like, ah, oh, but I feel a little shameful when I'm around you. And it's not because they're, they're, they're shaming us. It's just because you can see and feel and sense the holiness that's coming off of their life. That's what it means to be separated from sinners. And he says he's exalted above the heavens. Our high priest is not here on earth. He's not, he's not limited by location, but he's in heaven. Jesus is a better high priest because he's eternal and because he's holy. He's also a better sacrifice. And we're going to finish up here. He says in, in verse 27, he, talking about Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. See, whereas the, the blood of bulls and goats is, is supposed to give a picture, Jesus is that picture. Right? If, if the... the the sacrificial system was a husk. Jesus is the seed. If, if he's the silhouette, Jesus is the one who steps into the silhouette and helps us to see what it is. He is, he is the substance of, of what God was trying to do. And his death on the cross, his blood shed, his body broken, his resurrection, all of that, it, it's, it's greater than the sacrifice because it is a person sacrificed in our place, and it is God sacrificing in our place. So he is infinitely valuable, and his death is worth more than we can imagine. That's why he didn't just die and one guy got saved. But he can save, as it says, to the uttermost. Because his life is infinitely valuable, his sacrifice is absolutely sufficient. I want you to listen to the words of this prolific uh, hymn writer, Isaac Watts. If you've never heard of him, you've heard his songs. It says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. See, what Isaac was saying was that the blood of these animals couldn't take away our guilt, or wash away the stain, it was only intended to point to the one who could. Jesus takes away our sin. Jesus is a nobler sacrifice. You know, I, I ask the question, how do we draw near to God? How is it possible for us to draw near to God? I was thinking about this because in, you know, me and our, our, our family, we do these Bible verses in the morning, or we try to, not every morning got a list that we go through. And, and we went through um, James 4, 7, and 8 the other day and said this, submit yourself therefore to the Lord, or sorry, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And I, th I thought about that and it's such a simple command that God gives. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What, what an amazing promise. 
But how do we do that with the level of confidence that we won't be struck down? Or, or how do we do that? Maybe we're not worried about being struck down. Maybe we're worried about being heard. You know, God doesn't strike people down anymore, but, but I don't know that he hears me. How can I draw near to him and trust that he will draw near to me? And the writer of Hebrews, in, in, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, invites us to draw near. <clears throat> it says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can we do this without fear of destruction? Why can we do this with faith that God will see us and, and meet us? We can do this because of Jesus Jesus says of himself in, in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. We can come to God the Father because we come through Jesus Christ. Today, what, what's the, what are you trusting as granting you access into whatever you think your hope is? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own good efforts? Hey, I'm, I'm, I know, hey, Pastor Eddie, you're right. I'm, I'm a rascal with you, but I'm not like my, my coworker. He is a jerk. And if you met him, you'd, you'd think that I was a saint. And that may be true, but, but how does that measure up to the holiness of God? Are, are you trusting in your own, you know, God, I've worked Years, I've worked decades, I've sacrificed for my family. I, I know that you call me to obedience and trusting you, but, but I just want to let you know that I have worked really hard. I have invested in my career. Are you trusting your career? You know, I, I just got into this relationship and, and things are, are looking good and I'm feeling better about myself. You know, I think the things that we're lacking, this person is providing. Are you trusting someone to someone else? another rascal like yourself to bring wholeness and, and holiness to your life? What are you trusting to remove the stain of sin from your life? Sin is not a funny thing or a fun thing that we like to talk about and I don't think it's really, it's not a popular, I mean some places you don't even, what is sin? But the reality is we're all affected by it. I'm affected by it. I have sin in my life, the stain of sin. What, what, do, what do we trust to deal with that? I can tell you what, it's not OxyClean. What are you trusting to bring real, meaningful change to your life? Family, the, the, the reality is only Jesus can do it. The good news is that Jesus will do it. Jesus will do it. He's a better high priest. He's a better sacrifice. And he invites us to come to him and allow him to bring us to the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do recognize and remember that we need, we need someone to stand as an advocate for us before you. God, we need someone to stand and, and stand between us because we ourselves are not holy. We need someone to remove the stain of the, the evil and the disobedience and the rebellion and the wrong that we've done. 
We need someone to change our own hearts. God, I thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, God becoming man, living on, on this earth, living a perfect, obedient life, and then dying on the cross as our sacrifice, and then rising again from the dead, that you have made it possible for us to approach you without fear, with reverence, but without fear. If you're in this room and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want to trust him today, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Father, we, we thank you for your faithfulness. And God, we pray that, that you would help us to see that your holiness invites us to approach through Jesus. God, I pray that we would hold Jesus dear in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, family.